You've heard him on NPR with Peter Sagal. You've seen him on TV with Bill Maher. His books have been bestsellers. He's been about everywhere, seen lots of interesting stuff, and reported on it in articles and magazines as diverse as The Atlantic Monthly, The Weekly Standard, House and Garden, and Rolling Stone. He's P.J. O'Rourke, recognized as one of America's foremost satirists. His latest book is out this month. It's a look at Adam Smith and his 1776 classic, an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. It's aptly titled, On the Wealth of Nations. Biocritic.org says, On the Wealth of Nations is a concise and humorous 200 pages, readable for a contemporary audience. It's better than the original. We're very pleased to say, P.G. O'Rourke, welcome to Radio Parallax. Hey, well, better than the original. I wouldn't go quite that far. The original contains some pretty original thinking, <laughs> which, <laughs> which the unoriginal lays no claim to. All right. Well, I, I am keen to discuss Adam Smith's classic work, but I would want to take a minute or two to establish your credentials for some of our younger listeners here in, in, in UC Davis's uh, station. Uh, back in 1974, when I was a student here, you and the late Doug Kenny put together what I thought at the time was the funniest thing I ever read, the National Lampoon 1964 High School Yearbook parody. And I would add that 33 years later, I still think it is the most <laughs> rolling-on-the-floor funny thing I've ever read. Is there any chance you're going to get the people at National Lampoon to reissue that? Well, you know, they did. Uh, uh, there is a little press uh, that is uh, there. I don't know who owns National Lampoon now. It's long ago degenerated into some sort of vomit movie uh, operation, <laughs> you know, every now. About every two years they turn out a, a college vomit movie. Those of us who've been through college don't really need to see that again. They do have a, a print division, and about two years ago, they, they did reprint the high school yearbook, and I think you can probably still find it on Amazon. And I was glad to say that I thought it did stand up. I think there is something universal about the high school world that just doesn't change. Uh, you know, all the changes since, I mean, we, in 1974, we were parodying a 1964 high school yearbook, because we thought things had changed so much between 1964 and 1974. Of course, we were wrong. Things really hadn't changed at all. And, and we should have known that because when we researched this, Doug and I dug up all these high school yearbooks dating back to the 1920s, and they were exactly the same back then. High school just never changes. Well, I have a uh, original copy of it uh, stuck aside. Actually, I've got a couple of them back from 1974, and I, every once in a while, when I'm in a, in a mood, I'll just take it out. And I, still a good laugh. Well, next time I'm out there, I'll sign Miss. Ar I played Miss Armbruster, the girls' gym teacher. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, you did. <laughs> well, you've uh, you've traveled all over the world. You've pondered what works and doesn't work in numerous essays, both in magazine and then later on in book form. Did that lead you back to Adam Smith's original inquiry into the causes of a nation's wealth? Well, it did actually a few years back. About ten years ago, I wrote a book about uh, economics, sort of about economics. It was really about why, why some countries are rich and other countries are poor. It was called Eat the Rich. And what had led me to that was years of political reporting had, had, had made me come to believe that, or realize, I should say, 
that beneath politics, of course, there is an enormous amount of economics. And although I knew something about politics, we can hardly help know, but to know something about politics as much as it's in our face all every day. Uh, I didn't know anything about economics. I was an English major, so I made myself learn some stuff about economics, and I, I got interested in fundamental principles. And then what happened was that Grove Atlantic, my publisher, is doing this series called uh, Books That Change the World. And what they're trying to do is get these great big books that are very important, like The Origin of Species and the Bible, for Koran, Das Kapital, books that, to tell the truth, we're probably never going to get all the way through. And then <laughs> pick people to write about these books, and they asked me if I would write about Adam Smith. And thinking back to the stuff I'd done on on economics, I thought, sure. And that was before I realized just how much. <laughs> it took me more than a year to do the reading. It didn't take me that long to write the book, but it took me more than a year to do the reading. It's a bit, it's a bit dense, isn't it? It is, and not only that, but there are really two books. Uh, Adam Smith wrote another book before The Wealth of Nations. It's about morality, it, 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 and he, without reading his, his book uh, uh, about morality, uh, you can't really understand what he's trying to do about materiality. And so, you, so you have to read The Theory of Moral Sentiment, another big doorstop, uh, before you're really ready to begin on The Wealth of Nations. Can you give us a, a thumbnail sketch of what we what we know about Mr. Adam Smith, his bio? Yes, I mean he was a uh, he was a professional intellectual. He was a college teacher. He was a uh, professor of uh, uh, of moral philosophy, of course that probably isn't taught quite as often <laughs> as it ought to be these days. And um, uh, he got interested in in economics essentially because he had this uh, uh, he had this idea for kind of a project of human betterment, if you will. Sounds like a big task, doesn't it? But uh, 18th century, they were willing to tackle things like this. And so he was going to write a book tackling our, 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 our moral ideas. That was the theory of moral sentiments. Our material life, that was the wealth of nations. And then he was going to do a third book about politics, which he never did. And in fact, he burned the notes on his book about politics. And, and I think it was... Uh, I mean, we don't know this, but my guess is that it was because he was a moral philosopher, and in the end, he's looking at politics, and he's going, I'm not sure there's much place for philosophy in politics, and there's no place for morals. So I think he kind of gave up on the third part. Well, you summarize uh, Smith's principles in A Wealth of Nations as a trinity of pursuit of self-interest, division of labor, and freedom of trade. Um, can we start with the most straightforward, perhaps, of the three, division of labor? What did Smith mean by that? I suppose the word we'd use today would be specialization, but it, but he also says a larger meaning there. It's not just that we split up tasks, which necessarily we do, but also that we have the freedom to learn skills and to choose our own jobs, and and, and then that that freedom naturally uh, 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 coincides with our our freedom to pursue our own self-interest. It also naturally coincides with the third part of the Trinity, which is freedom of trade, by which Smith just didn't mean just, you know, importing cheap plush toys from China. Uh, he meant that we should be free to exchange our goods and services, what we produce, with, with, uh, with other people and the goods and services that they produce without being interfered with, either by monopolists or by governments or by priests or whoever. Let's talk about the pursuit of self-interest. The late economist Milton Friedman used to say that uh, 
one of the few things you can absolutely count on is that the other guy will put his interests ahead of yours. Friedman regarded that as, uh, as right and proper. But uh, Adam Smith was really the first one to put forth the idea that much general good comes from the not necessarily intended consequences of people acting on their own behalf. That's the meaning of the invisible hand. Uh, people talk about uh, Adam Smith's use of the, of, the, of the metaphor, the invisible hand. And they often talk about this as though Smith was saying that there's an invisible hand, that if we just let capitalism run wild, there's this invisible hand that'll make us all rich. That's not what he meant. He was simply talking, it was, his invisible hand was his way of saying unintended consequences. And Smith um, did not think it was right and proper that we put our own interests first in particular, but he did think that it was a fact that we do, and, and let's face it, and, and, and let's go with it. He said, however, in so doing, in putting our own self first, we don't mean to, but we help other people along by this. And he's talking about the how you don't get your dinner from, 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 the, from the butcher and the baker and the brewer because they love you, because they're swell guys. They may or may not be. Uh, you get it because they are trying to promote their own self-interest, selling beer and steak and, 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 and bread. And, and he said, and it turns out that everybody benefits from that. You get your dinner, they get their living. And he said, we should, you know, we, we should work with this instead of trying to work against it. Well, let's talk about the, the third leg of the triangle, free trade. In the late, uh, late 1700s, Britain was involved in a mercantile system and had uh, many economic restrictions. What did Smith, uh, what were his thoughts on what would, needed to be done? Well, first and foremost, he thought it was a moral question that, that, that restricting trade, even between countries, is imposing upon individuals saying, oh, no, you cannot exchange your goods and services, what you produce, for any old goods and services. You can only exchange them for goods and services within this country. Or, or, or with people that we think we like this week, or, 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 or with people who are the right color or the right religion or something. And um, secondly, he was pointing out that, that, that the whole idea of restricting trade presumed that a positive trade balance, that is to say get, sending a lot of stuff overseas and getting a lot of money in return from it, was actually going to make you richer. And Smith was trying to point out, he said that the way I put it in the book was that imports are Christmas morning. Imports are getting stuff. Exports are the way we pay for how we get that stuff. Exports are January's Visa card bill. <laughs> Smith said, you've got it all backwards. Imports are the good things. We're getting all these good things from people. And exports are the way that we unfortunately have to pay for all those good things. Now, if we can get people to send us a lot of good things, the way the Chinese send us a lot of good things, and, and in return, just give them pieces, little green pieces of paper. It's actually the Chinese who should be worried about this, not us. Let's talk a bit about about China. Smith didn't worry about the balance of trade, and you don't, you're not concerned about it uh, terribly much yourself. Why no, do you think I'm it's not. such a non-issue? Well, I, I, I think it's a non-issue be, because people are under the the misapprehension of the. the Trade means that, that if you and I trade, that, that, that one of us is going to get the better deal. And they assume that any time there's a trade involved, uh, uh, it, it, you know, most people with, in terms of large ticket trading uh, don't do a lot of it. And, and, and so they think in terms of car dealers. Um, I happen to have grown up in a family of car dealers, so, so I know a little bit of what I'm speaking. They think they're basically going to get rooked, and they may get rooked at the car dealer. But what Adam Smith was pointing out is at the root of things, all 
free trades, all trades that are, that are done with freedom of will, that are not coerced, are mutually beneficial by definition. I've got something that, that, that I want less than what I want from you, and you want the thing that I've got more than what you've got, and we trade. It may be a stupid trade. It may be a lopsided trade. But that trade, we feel that trade mutually benefits us. And, and, and people have a tendency to think in zero-sum terms, to think that anything that makes me better off makes somebody else worse off, that if I have too many slices of the pizza, you've got to eat the Domino's box. And Smith was trying to point out that in the, in the modern world, the modern industrial world, even as it was just beginning in his era, that no, no, we produce more wealth. We, we can produce much, we can make more pizzas. Uh, it, it's not a matter of just dividing up one small pie. History seems to have proven Smith right on this issue about um, enlarging the whole pie, as it were. But uh, clearly some people still doubt that. Well, some people do, do doubt that because life is not fair. And, 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 and any attempt to make life fair requires such a huge mechanism of, of government interference is that an uh, invisible hand there, or, or some people call it the invisible foot of government, ends up th making things even more unfair. We have the example of communism in the old Soviet bloc to show us what happens when you try and make life perfectly fair for everybody. You get secret police enforcing fairness. I go through this a lot at my own house because uh, I've got a nine-year-old daughter, and of course, as nine-year-olds are inclined to do, she, she very frequently says to me, that's not fair. And when she does, I say to her, honey, you're cute. That's not fair. Your family's pretty well off. That's not fair. You were born in America. That's not fair. You had better just pray to God that things don't start getting fair for you. You have some interesting uh, quotes in the book. Uh, Adam Smith did have a rather unromantic view of the wheelings and dealings of merchants and manufacturers, and you, you included a quote that said that uh, those people, quote, complain much of the bad effects of high wages in raising the price of their goods, both at home and abroad. They say nothing concerning the bad effects of high profit. They're silent with regard to the pernicious effects of their own gains. That's language that really sounds kind of like Michael Moore commenting on some of our CEOs. Absolutely. Smith was no, was no booster for capitalism. I mean, he looked, at, he looked at the free market with a cold, clear eye, and he knew that he, he said that, that you know, people in a certain line of business never get together, even for just for social pleasure, without it resulting in, to some extent in a conspiracy against the public. You know? Every time the, the, the plumbing supply contractors of America meet in Reno, <laughs> the, the, the cost of your sink traps is going to go up. You know? <laughs> so he's, he's saying, you know, he, he's saying, you know, people are 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 not. I mean, people are self-interested, and we have to keep a very careful eye. But but he said that that, that the purpose of government and the purpose of government regulation is to, to the greatest extent we can, make people more free, more free to compete with each other. And he, he never felt that greed was good, but he felt that greed was an interesting controlling device. And he said, he said, gee, you know, merchants would really have us over a barrel, uh, would totally have us at this mercy if they could make agreements on what to charge things and what to pay people and stick to those agreements. He said that somebody always cheats. They want to sell more, so they lower their price. They want to hire better people, so they up their wages. 
in contravention to the agreement that they made with all the other merchants. So it's not that greed is good per se, but greed has an, it's that old invisible hand. It has, oddly enough, can have a good effect. One of your most quoted lines is, giving money and power to governments like giving whiskey and car keys to teenage boys. Uh, very understandable sentiment, but uh, but PJ, you've you've been around the world. You've seen what it's uh, what it means to have almost no functioning government. Uh, so don't you agree that a system for establishing societal ground rules, i.e., sound government, is is actually vital to a free society? It's probably the single most important thing. And if I had uh, to go back and uh, and rework uh, the uh, the book that I wrote about international economics, about the, uh, eat the rich, about why some countries are rich and others are poor. I would pay much more attention to what Smith called jurisprudence, or we would call rule of law. Rule of law is absolutely essential, and it may well even be better to have bad, well, it is better to have bad laws, at least up to a point, than it is to have no laws. I mean, uh, we we would rather live in, in, say, communist Czechoslovakia than we would care to live in modern Somalia. So, so, so a legal system is extremely important, and a government is extremely important. That doesn't mean we should expect government to be good. That doesn't mean the government is good in of itself. It merely means that the fact of government, that, that invisible hand, one more time, uh, uh, has some very good effects. Well, Adam Smith has proven to be one of the most influential thinkers in history, but The Wealth of Nations is probably an example of a classic as described by Mark Twain, in that it's a book everybody wants to have read, but nobody wants to read. Do you think... <laughs> That's true. <laughs> do, you, do you think in the wake of your, your book, people are going to go out and read him? Yes, I, I hope so. I, I think that what my book does in part is that it gives people a little bit of a map to show them what parts of, the, of this 900-page monolith and of, uh, of the theory of moral sentiments of the book that comes before, what parts they'll be most interested in reading, and they say, can go read that. Remember, Smith was inventing economics, and so he had to invent all sorts of measurements and comparisons that we take for granted. I mean, he invented the concept of gross domestic product, but that's not something, but he couldn't just abbreviate it to GDP. He had to explain the entire idea, and that took pages and pages. Well, for the record, your book finally got me to go out and purchase a copy of it, so I, for one, do plan to get through it. Excellent. <laughs> and final comment, uh, your, the cover of your book, Age and Guile Beat Youth, Innocence, and a Bad Haircut, is really is an American classic and sort of emblematic of this show. <laughs> uh, happens to us all, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Well, P.J. Rook, we're just about out of time, so I just want to say then uh, thank you very much for speaking with us. Well, you're welcome, and thank you for having me on the show. All righty. The book is On the Wealth of Nations, and we've been speaking with author P.J. O'Rourke about it and the legendary Adam Smith, who wrote the original 1776 classic, An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. Our guest has written 14 books previously, including works such as Republican Party Reptile, along with numerous magazine articles for the likes of The Weekly Standard, The Atlantic Monthly, and Rolling Stone. He's also co-author of what this correspondent uh, thinks of as the funniest thing he's ever read, the 1964 high school yearbook parody from National Lampoon. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. Let's take a short break. <laughs> 